Good afternoon. It's, um, it's been an interesting season in the life of the church. If you've been around, you know, last week we had a baptism service of, of children, particularly, into the, the life of the church. And then this weekend we've, we've been hosting a parents' conference here, both Friday and Saturday. And, and uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, the, the family, but particularly covenant children, covenantal parenting, and um, today, uh, I want to try to expand this conversation a little bit into the very life of our church. That is to say, um, that you at large are so very much involved in all of this. Whether you have a child or not, whether you're single, whether you're post-children, if you ever are, um, however you would see yourself, um, there, there's a sense in which we believe that what happened in that baptism last week and what is happening now in the life of our church and, and the delightful expansion of the church through babies and children is, is something that is not just for nuclear families to think about, but for the whole life of the church. And I say that because we are in a tradition, the Presbyterian tradition particularly, is, is quite uh, a cautious about vow-taking. It's one of the great beefs of the Reformers that that vows were, were too casually being taken as to bind conscience of people. And we're, we're very, very careful when we ask someone to take a vow in the context of the, the holy assembly or worship of God that, that we have good reason from Scripture to do that. And you remember that when we baptize children here, we, we do require and ask a vow of those who are members of the church at large. It goes like this. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child. Again, it begs the question, though, doesn't it? What theological assumption about the family, parenting, but especially the church itself supports this vow? This vow that in some ways would oblige, and I used that word having a conversation earlier in our Sunday school class, so whoever you are out there, don't think that I'm into that conversation right now, but But there's a sense in which we are obliged by those vows uh, to enter into parenting holistically and collectively with our parents. What is the theological assumption that drives that? By way of an answer, then, I'm going to briefly review some of the things that we talked about with the parents this weekend, particularly Friday night. And so those of you who are parents and who were there, we had a good 30 of you or so. Uh, Some of this will be a review, but I hope that you'll see it in the context now of the greater assembly, but then I'm going to take it and really flesh it out in Colossians chapter, uh, you know, five there in that passage that we just read. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you that we're on to something here that's quite profound, that you envisioned a community, a community of faith that is tied to your ancient, the ancient oaths and vows that began with Adam himself and how we therefore participate in a great and profound legacy, a legacy that bequeaths legacies to next generations, a legacy no less than heaven itself. Oh God, help us to discern, build in us conviction. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me again uh, refer you to the passage, particularly that, those statements beginning in verse 7 of Genesis, spoken here to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give you 
and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, I will be your God. Notice a few things here. First of all, this is a contract. When we say a covenant, it simply means an agreement or a contract between two parties. Uh, There are stipulations in a contract, and then there are representing curses or blessings, depending on how how you do with them stipulations. You break them, and there's curse coming from the contract. There, you you keep them, and there's there's going to be great blessings. That's the gist of what we have here as an ancient contract. But I want you to notice the parties particularly. Who are the parties involved in this contract? Well. Clearly, you would see that it's one party is the, con- is the contracting uh, maker here of God. But God with who? Well, of course, with Abraham. Right? Wrong or yes, no. Do you hear it again? This is a contract with Abraham, but all those who are envisioned under Abraham's federal or covenantal executiveship, as to be inclusive of those that will benefit from this very contract in his own household and envisioning here now households that eventually will expand to all the nations. I need to unpack that a little bit. It starts with God. You see, there's something here about this the understanding of a covenantal relationship with God and our children, but particularly those who would follow after us, that, that begins and ends with God. It's a decree of God. It's, it's God's sovereign decree that he established the missional purpose of humanity as to be bequeathed, if you will, through households. It's the great commission that you have envisioned here. It's interesting that right before this passage that I read, he quotes the very commission that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden and and talking about being fruitful and multiplying, which if you understand the context of that is to expand the kingdom to all nations. It's not just an agricultural term. It's used that way, but, but it's really a great commission to expand this great covenant contract that God is making with humanity into all the nations with the promise of eternal life as depicted in the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And the curse, of course, is if you violate this sacramental tree, if you will, then you will be cursed unto death. But if you were to keep this sacramental tree uh, ritual, if you will, then you will be, of course, blessed into eternal life. This covenant begins with God. It's initiated by God to Abraham. And this has significance. We talked about it as parents, how there is a first cause in our children's salvation, and we can never confuse ourselves with that cause. It's not the parent. It's not even the holistic church. Ultimately, the first cause, the first thing, is God's divine election of your child. And here's the thing. What God is saying here is that if a child is given to you and your household, Abraham, then that child presumptively is now part of this covenant. It's for you and for all your household that I make this covenant. That presumption you're going to find throughout all of redemptive history, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and I'm not lying. 
You see it all over the place. This language, and you and all of your household, you will see that language repeating over and over and over again in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Just read the book of Acts, and almost every conversion story will will, will speak of the conversion of a Abraham, say, federal head or, or, or covenantal executor, and it specifies that person particularly, and all of your household, as those who would come under this contract that is God is making a conversion with someone representing here a family. And so that's very important. Notice especially then how it is an everlasting promise. What is, what is at stake with this covenant? Well, whatever it is, it's everlasting because the passage goes out of its way to reiterate that. It's an everlasting covenant leading to an everlasting possession with respect to this everlasting offspring. Over and over again, it's an eternal covenant. And so really, I want you to step back and think about what's being entrusted here to Abraham and to his posterity. What's being entrusted is the very legacy, the very inheritance of heaven and hell at stake. And so here we have this promise. It's spoken of in chapter in, in Hebrews chapter 11, where in the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew writers remembers this very contract that God makes with Abraham, and he recites the life of Abraham, and then he says how it is that he was to, quote, receive an inheritance, and that inheritance involves a land of promise, and it does. And then it goes on to say, but what is that land of promise that's envisioned in this great contract that God makes with Abraham? It is, quote, verse 14, they were seeking a homeland that is a better country, that is heaven. That's what this whole story is about. Now let me unpack that a little bit more. This covenant community is identified as being missionary, you see, by her very nature. That her purpose as related to expanding the kingdom of God to the whole world was to eventually become a purpose that gets you and leads to heaven. Is there any greater, I ask the parents and now I ask you the congregation, is there any greater and more ultimate inheritance or legacy that we should be leaving to our children? Is there anything that would perhaps contradict that legacy or, or compete with that legacy in our hearts or minds? Can we get distracted from it? That, that's worthy of contemplation, both as a church as well as a family. But to be clear, Paul reminds us in Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so automatically we realize that we're entering into a really big deal here. Because we know this life to be uh, transient and temporal. And we know that the kingdom of God as it's expanding into this world now is ultimately an expansion that's going to be completed when this world is transformed by heaven to earth. And we know that the greatest of all inheritances is to, be in, to inherit that promise. The covenant has been made with Abraham, not then as an individual we've seen, representing this covenant community in the role of a federal 
or covenantal head. What did I mean by that? You see, a a covenant, and, and I want you to hear this carefully, is the very basis of grace. Without a covenantal way of God relating to us, it would it would take away the possibility of grace. And here's what I mean. You see, in this relationship of Abraham, if you will, as a type, as we'll see, of Christ, to the family of God, as a type, of course, of the church, without this relationship, we would have to satisfy uh, all the works of God's that God intended for us in creation. That is to say, The federal representative, or this idea of a covenant head, is someone who God, in a legal sense, in a forensic contract as we have here, allows to represent the people so that this covenant executor's actions are the actions of the people. Now, you understand this even in in, uh, secular sort of ways. What is an executor of a will? If someone were to die, and this person then will execute the will, and it is the execution of the will of that person who's died as if the person, him or herself, were doing it. That's the idea here of this contract. And so here we have now all of salvation history, the redemptive purpose of God in forming the creation in the first place and redeeming it in the second place. It's all now being packed down into what we call this covenantal theology. A theology that wants to focus now on the redemptive community as a household. Abraham's household, by the way, don't think of a nuclear family if you're new to the Bible. You're thinking thousands here. Literally thousands of people were in this great state today, much more like a tribe. And that this contract made with Abraham meant to extend itself to all nations is a contract that's going to be accomplished by virtue of this federal headship activity of Abraham, which then includes all the people within it. And you'll see how that's important to our doctrine of circumcision and baptism. And so with that being in mind, just uh, how then was this legacy to be passed down? How then would the, the all and all your offspring after you participate in it? Well, this is where something very strange happens indeed. For here we have this command. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. And I'm expecting now a whole list of laws and rules. Do this and do this and do this and do this, right? Aren't you expecting that? Here's the stuff you got to do. And it just looks kind of crazy to us within our sort of individualistic orientation and all this other stuff. Because here's what he says. What do they got to do? He says this, every male among you shall be circumcised. What? He goes on to say, so shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be in sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, what is going on here? Well, let me just tell you that that whatever else we're about to say about circumcision, it applies to baptism. You say, how so, Pastor? Well, if you go into Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a great sermon on the gospel. People come to him and say, you know, okay, what must we do to be saved? And he says this, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your offspring after you. 
Ever hear that phrase before? That's right. He's quoting Genesis 17. And for all who are fall off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, there's something going on here that's very powerful. Circumcision, like baptism, envisioned a conversion by the Holy Spirit. For Moses in Deuteronomy will will further explain the doctrine of of circumcision when he says that, that what's happening in this great rite or ritual of circumcision in the Old Testament is envisioned that those who are the recipients of it would be what? Circumcised in the heart. Jeremiah picks up that exact same thing as he anticipates the new covenant and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Paul here says it explicitly. Quoting Genesis 17, referencing then a baptism that will what? Repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. You go back in the context there, and the Holy Spirit is that which, of course, is the spirit of rebirth. Being born again. Now, I'm opening up a lot of can of worms. I know. What's going on? How does this work? Is it magic? Is is it a magic show you're talking about, Pastor? Not at all. Let me further explain it. You see, there were two ways in which a person could come into this circumcision, just as there are today. It could be someone who's of another tribe, of another legacy, of another God, who would convert to Abraham's tribe, or would be a convert to Israel. And they would be circumcised a believer's circumcision, if you will. And then, of course, there was another way, the birth of children. The birth of children are now brought under the jurisdiction of this covenant headship principle unto which they have been given to Abraham and and then later to Moses and and the Israel people and even later to the church of Jesus Christ. These particular means of grace Means of grace that will be talked about in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6, things like the preaching and teaching of the word, things like the sacraments of the temple, which are now the sacraments of the church, things like a government and an accountability and a communality, all of which God promised, and this is key, to be in the midst of all that. These were not just things that they did with this kind of God's up there, we're down here. But no, if you understand the history of Israel, there was always this Shekinah cloud, a vision of God descending himself in presence into the life of the community, wherein these things that God himself prescribed for them to do would be the very means by which God would be in the midst of them by the Holy Spirit Shekinah glory that was there in order to work on our hearts and enabling us, therefore, to be born again. That is, to to go through that idea of discovering our death, therefore, our need for the Holy Spirit and our rebirth into a new life, therefore, entering into a promised legacy. That's what was celebrated at circumcision. And that is what is celebrated at this baptismal font. And that now redefines the meaning of this whole community. For you see, here we have it, this amazing story of how God has created in us, the family of God is what we're called, this amazing power that is to accomplish an amazing mission. The action is here. 
It's the sign of any healthy church that understands itself not as a sending church, though they may send missionaries to other cities or places or lands. But at the core, a church is missionary by her very nature. It's the very way we have been constructed by God that makes us missionary. And here's the thing, lest we forget it, which is why I wanted to preach this sermon. The number one missionary strategy of God is that before even the foundation of the world, The stars all lined up that got to you and you and you and you as a parent, that brought into this world you and you and you and you as a child, that brought them into you and you and you and you, this community of faith we call the church, the household of God, wherein the powerful presence of God would inhabit the means of grace in a manner which the presumption would be ordinarily, but not necessarily, but ordinarily, they would be brought into a saving presence and grace of God unto salvation. And that's who we are. Even as we make that same invitation to other parents and children outside of the family of God to come and be converted and come into this family of God where they too will be invited into the family of God. If you have learned anything today, rethink what is a church. A church is not primarily an event. It's certainly not primarily a particular experience at an event. And that is real in vogue now. But it is a family. You are not per- fully participating in the life of, a, of God in his presence until you participate in the life of the holy family of God. And in that family is given this great purpose. You are special. You, being you as God forms you, are the very epicenter of the missionary mandate of creation itself. The action is in every local congregation. Your significance and your purpose is not primarily in who you send and what you fund. Your your significance is primarily who you are, my brothers and sisters. And how we, therefore, see this place as the energy of God making disciples of Christ. Bring them under the legacy of Abraham. And think about it. As one of those missionary strategies... When we see a child born into a covenant family, that is a family under the covenant representation of Christ by grace through faith alone, who therefore is in, they are by birthright members of this church. It is not as though they were strangers who came in and and they're asking. It's that God, by his decree, the very first act of God's sovereign decree was their birth. And we take that as very significant. That your child, you children, you don't know it, but God was really active when mom met dad. They were in the same city. They were in the same place. They did something, and somehow it connected, and they became together. And you came out of that blessed union of love. And God orchestrated every bit of it. We talked about this in our theology class this year, but somehow we think of miracles as more specially divine than providence. God, that is the work of God that acts through the natural laws, but does so in a way where supernatural, if you will, extraordinary things will happen according to his purposes. 
And we believe that everything whatsoever happens in this world happens as an act of God's providence, divinely orchestrating and directing all things whatsoever that come to pass. You are not an accident, kids. (laughs) Whether your parents told you you were or not, you're not an accident. You are divinely purposed, and it's not an accident you're in this family called the church. And now, church, it's not an accident that God has entrusted these children to you. It's your first missionary priority to, quote, evangelize them, or better, nurture them. And that, of course, is what follows in this passage, how it is. So here's the idea. Is baptism and circumcision efficacious unto salvation? Yes. Insofar as a child through baptism is engrafted into the body of Christ, wherein they will have access to the very means of converting grace, awaiting, of course, that confirmation, wherein they can themselves be brought to a place with a new heart, because only a new heart could be brought to this place by the Holy Spirit, wherein they will assent to the truth of the gospel, they will now discern the need for themselves for that gospel, that they would want to receive it, and then they would rest upon that gospel as their only hope of salvation and the legacy of heaven itself. Assent, receive, and rest is what we wait for in every covenant child who are already members of the church by their baptism, who we already presume to be Christians, albeit awaiting their confirmation. Now, that raises the whole question, how do we get there? Well, here's where I'd turn to Colossians. In Colossians, we have this amazing um, uh, explanation of everything that was taught to the Israel people. And I have them here. They're Deuteronomy 6, 4, all sorts of passages. But Paul sums the whole thing up for you and me this way. Fathers, even as it is done in the context of the assembly, remember, children are listening to this. They're present. Fathers, he says, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want to unpack that. This passage is is the classic passage in the New Testament for what parents and also those who are assisting the parents by their vows, the church, are instructed to do. And so I need to unpack this carefully, and I didn't get to do this on Friday. What does fathers mean here? Does it exempt mothers? Absolutely not. Again, you have to understand, historically throughout redemptive history, the covenant head, that is that covenant executor, the one who took responsibility for the gospel in his home, historically, redemptively, was the father. It was a role play that God assigned to him that eventually was meant typologically to direct you to the second Adam, the second father of humanity, that is, to Christ. It's a very significant and symbolic word this father when i speak here of father therefore when paul is speaking of fathers he has less in mind as i'm going to show you the the sex of the parent and more in mind the covenant role or position of the parent it's kind of like when we in the scripture often it it says paul will say when you become a christian what will he say he'll say oh you've become sons of god and what does he mean by that well a You could say, well, I guess there's no daughters of God. I don't know of any good Christian theologian that would say that. Oh, he's he's meaning to exclude the women in this little thing. Oh, you become a son of God. I, I don't know of anywhere in the scripture, although we often 
tagging on uh, because in our context, we want to make sure that theologically, and that would be correct to do it theologically, but we'll often, you'll hear me say, oh, you are all sons and daughters of God. I can't find a place in the New Testament where that's the language. It's always you are sons of God. And of course, I know theologically that Paul's not saying that, children, that women are not sons of God. In fact, he says in several places how there's no distinction, whether male nor female, you are all participants of being in the family of God, equally, equally together participants of God's salvation. See, what is going on here, and I just want you to hear this, our blessed modern people, is that God, what Paul's not doing here is being a chauvinist. He's saying, quite frankly, I want you to understand that, that the family, first and foremost, is defined as under this headship of Christ of which there is appointed in every family a, a one who would mediate that headship into the life of the family, a covenant executor. So I think you could theologically have read this passage, covenant executors of families, do not provoke your children. Now, here's my evidence, by the way, just to say that. Even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, when instructions are given to the covenant executors of the family, mothers are included. For instance, Proverbs, hear my son, your father's instruction. And you're in this what we call synonymous parallelism. It's a very common thing that's done in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrews poetry. Hear my son, your father's instruction, and don't forsake your mother's teaching. Teaching, instruction, synonymous father, mother here, acting in a covenant role with respect to their family, mediating to them, ultimately, of course, the God of Israel, and as revealed, of course, eventually in Christ. Proverbs 6 does the same thing. Deuteronomy 6 does the same thing. I could go through all kinds of passages. That's just an example. And it's true that when you get to Acts, for instance, we have an instance of this. Acts chapter 16, verse 15, we have this woman named Lydia, and, she, and, and the language of Genesis 7, uh, 17 is, is applied to Lydia. Lydia, it says, and after she was baptized and her household after her, now where did he get that? And that's the language, by the way, you'll see in baptisms all through the Acts, that baptisms always involve not only this covenant executor or head, but all the household under them being brought or engrafted in, remember, to that community of faith, wherein the presumption would be that they would be brought to a, a being born again or, or conversion through their own consciousness into a saving faith. The presumption. And so here you have this amazing history of, of, of this family of God. So in today, for instance, if you go back to some of the ancient texts, they'll call the session, those who govern the church, they're the fathers of the church. That's just a covenantal language there. And those of us who've been sort of, just, you know, taken out of the context for that just hear only a biological term, but it's not that, okay? So I hope I've cleared something of that up, and I know there could be some discussions afterward. So first of all, notice what's happening here. Paul has, has set apart the family as now a covenantal entity under the covenantal promise of Abraham. Notice then, secondly, the first command is in the negative. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now, here again, I've read so many children books, and it just, I'm sorry, I think it, many of them miss the whole point as they, whether they psychologize this or behavioralize this. There's something covenantal going on here. Let me prove it to you. Do not provoke to what? This word. 
This, the paradigmizo is, is the best way to say it, I think, but, but in the Greek. But here's the language. It's, it's used twice by Paul. I'm not going to go too deep, I promise. It's used twice, and the only other time he uses it, he uses it in Romans 10. But I asked, did Israel not understand? The question is, why is it, Paul, that we see some Israelites rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though it had been prepared for them through all the covenants and means of grace throughout the history? Why is it some Israelites are not the true Israel? He's just talk, He's just distinguished between true Israel and, 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 and the rest of Israel that aren't true necessarily. And here's what Paul says. God, he quotes now Isaiah, and he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you jealous, angry, this word. Now, here's the key here. Um, he says it twice. One word is a word that clearly refers to jealousy. The second word now is treated to be in sympathetic with that word jealousy. And, and so all this to say this, here's what's going on. Do not provoke your children to jealousy. Jealousy of what? Well, the the condemnation that Paul is referring to from Isaiah is the condemnation of the shepherds of Israel that neglected their responsibility to bring the flock of God to the grace of the gospel, basically. They were neglectful of their children's spiritual journey and legacy. And therefore, it's a great sin, as you see here. Do not follow in that wicked history of neglecting your covenantal responsibilities with respect to your children. And remember, he's speaking here to the family itself, but the family of God, into whom those families are engrafted. And so that's the first point. How might we do that? Oh, there's all sorts of ways, aren't there? All sorts of ways that we can be distracted into more secular pursuits. And I say that both for families, but also for the church. All sorts of ways. Children, I want you to hear me say this to you. Your, your families are listening to this right now, your dad and your mom. And they're thinking, oh my God, I know the, the, the heartache that I'm feeling with my kids I mean, their baseball team plays on Sunday morning, their soccer team plays on Sunday morning, or, or this happens when there's another uh, opportunity for a camp in the church, and they're wrestling with their conscience. And I want you to know that, that I know those are difficult things. I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> but remember, kids, if you're old enough to hear what I'm saying, that your parents are going through a very excruciating, excruciating challenge. They love you. They want you to be happy. They see that the immediate gratification of you being a part of that team or being a part of that concert or whatever the things are that you're doing, they see that that, that, you, that makes you in an immediate sense happy. But, oh, they have in the back of their head, having heard a sermon like this, oh, but the very power of their baptism is tied to their community involvement in the church. Oh, what kind of parent would I be if I neglected them? If I neglect to them the right and privilege that God gave them to participate in the holy presence of God that is very carefully you know, constructed into the life of the body of Christ. And so give your parents a break as they struggle through that. I'm speaking to you kids. Parents, I know your, your trial. Oh, Lisa and I just would struggle over this all the time. And yet, here we have that temptation. Our secular pursuit is going to crowd out the very 
power of God. I try to make my decisions as I think you too, too, is, you know, they may hate me for a while, but I get them back in heaven and they won't hate me there. I mean, I remember saying to my kids once in a very heated conversation, guys, I'm just going to have to say it right now. I remember saying in so many words, it's not going to sound right because it's out of context. Now our kids and I lose it. But I just said, guys, I'll see you in heaven. I guess right now it doesn't look like we're going to have a good relationship at all on earth. And I just, I mean, they know how badly I want to do it. I mean, there's not a parent in the world that doesn't want to be friends with their kids. That's their most secondary thing they want to do. But there's a time in life when a parent, to be a parent, must say it's not ultimately my calling to be their friend. It's to be their covenant parent. What I want more than anything in the world is to see Stephen, Nathan, Megan, and now and, and, and Anna, and now Megan, and now Brittany, and now this little boy growing in my son's, my wife's, my, you know, the, the woman, my son's, whoever it is, this offspring, the number one thing I want to do is however it is right for me to participate in encouraging and praying and blessing them that they might go to heaven. Because that's where the action is. And so that's number one here, this don't neglect don't move your children to be jealous, to that kind of jealousy where somewhere, somehow they discern that the most important gift of all is being given to those who by birthright didn't even have access to it, like me. Thank God that some do come in that way. I didn't grow up in a covenant home, and God was gracious to bring me into a covenant home, you, the church of Jesus Christ. So that's your first point. Notice then the next command, which is positive. Therefore, it says, bring them up. That word means to nurture. It means to to cherish. Really, there's a really deep and lovely term here. The bringing up is just, again, a really superficial way to interpret this. I mean, here's the way this word is translated in 1 Thessalonians as Paul thinks about his covenant headship role in the church as a pastor. He says, "For but we were gentle among you like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. That word tenderly caring for is the word used here, bring them up in the Lord. Oh, it's so wooden compared to the beautifulness of that word. And so herein we have this amazing positive command to nourish them, to cherish them to form a sympathetic relationship to our covenant children in a manner that they will be brought to discern the sympathetic posture of God to them through us. That they might be wooed and wowed and brought into, nurtured that is, into the, the very family of God wherein they have access to the very Abrahamic promise of heaven and not hell. That's eternal. That's the command. Bring them up. And then the, the, the datives here, the, the instrumental datives, we call them in the Greek. One says by discipline. That word discipline is the same word. It's an athletic term for training. Kids, if you're in sports or if you're in music lessons, you know what training is. It's not the same as teaching, though it might involve that. That's why there's another word here, training or discipline and teaching. To distinguish the two, 
Training has much to do with, well, the heart. Train up a child, it says, in the way they should go. Even as he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, training involves this, this, it's an atmosphere, it's a culture, it's, a, it's, it's training the manners and how a child grows up to live. It's, it's what we call in psychological terms a systemic or family system. And I would encourage you as a family, but also as a church, what is that culture? What is that family system like? Is this, when we have those vows, is this a church where our children see that really it is safe because of this covenant of grace to discover sin in our lives? Yes, to grieve it, but we don't have to hide it. Yes, to confess it, but we don't have to try to justify ourselves by it? Are we raising our children in a culture that's comfortable with confessing sin? You see, to raise them, to nurture them to the gospel is a home that is comfortable confessing sins one to another. Because you're at at peace with God, not through your sins or lack thereof, but you're at peace with God because of an executive, a covenant executor, who has sinlessly offered himself and his actions for you in executing the will of God that was given to your family, the one given to Abraham. This is important. And so you have certainly this idea of of leading people and your children to faith and to hope and to love. It's going to be a discipleship of the heart. You talked a lot about that, I know, yesterday as parents. As a church, we need to remember that. This is not behavioral training. A lot of people in the world are actually starting to want the church in their lives because they want some good moral training. Well, that's not what I'm talking about here, though it will come with that. But the goal is to instruct them into a covenant, a covenant that will lead them to understand this contract that God has made with the house of God by grace through faith alone. It's true that they'll also be involved teaching. Teaching wherein these children will uh, understand the gospel, understand even the manners and the behaviors that flow out of the gospel. So think of it this way. Um, John says, perfect love casts out fear. And then he goes on to say, and we love because he first loved us. We as a church can never forget in the way we think of these children that, that, that we start with justification, which leads to sanctification. We start with this bringing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherein they discover the love of God, the motive for obedience, the motive for doing good things or being obedient is, is always because God has first loved you, therefore, wouldn't it be stupid not to see whatever he commands us to do as love? He's proven his love to us. It's a very different motivation than fear. And that's the way we we do it. So let me um, just close this way. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of the child? Well, if you do, you will first and foremost join our parents in remembering that our children are not just rational uh, people, rational beings at the top of an evolutionary pyramid. That they're more than their, their minds applied to math and science and humanities. That they're more than, you know, and we could fill it in. But at the end of the day, 
we remember that they're living souls. That the soul of our children is the first thing to be considered in how we treat them. And so if that's the truth, then here's a couple of take-homes. If we understand the missionary importance of, of nurturing our children, our covenant children, then the first thing we're going to do is we're going to maintain a constant and sympathetic relation with our children. Where does that begin? Well, church, it begins when, when I'd love it to. It's, it's when after church, the kids are running around bumping into your legs and, you know, and, and there's just kind of a, I love to see that they love this church and they have, and there's a happiness and a comfortableness here. And yes, we, those of us who don't have children, especially not used to that activity, it can be hard. It can be hard. But we will remember that it is our duty. We took a vow to be sympathetic to their being here. And that there's a developmental process that these children must undergo before they're going to sit in a pew and be still. But we want them in the pew. Even if in a graduated way, we want them in the pew. And so we'll have to be sympathetic. I love that language. That comes right out of our book of church order. The church should maintain constant and sympathetic relations with the children, therefore encouraging them as they come to years in order to make confession of the Lord Jesus Christ and to enter upon all the privileges of being a child of God. This is the first thing. Our goal from baptism to Lord's Supper is, is going to be transacted with the presence of Christ's power in the midst of us. Therefore, we must make this place always friendly to our children. Now, parents, remember, it's hard for some people who are not used to children, especially as you get old and the ears are a little messed up and all kinds of things happen to you. And, and so it's true. And parents, you especially need to remember the, 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 the warning that the most important thing your children need from you is to be a healthy Christian. And so you want to use wisdom in how you use the nursery and the, the child care in a way that you receive the gospel yourself through worship. But very much in a graduated way, perhaps, we do expect and hope that children will be here. And that leads me to my second point. Those who have a sympathetic relationship to children, we as a session have discerned that the most, one of the most important aspects of that is that we encourage all members, all members to participate in our child care. And you might think, well, that's just to take care of this, this thing we got to do. It's not at all what motivated that decision. I remember when we made it years ago. The, what motivated that decision is we wanted to begin and to form that sympathetic relationship. Where every person in the church, everyone, you're thinking, well, I can't change diapers. Well, you don't have to. There'll be somebody there that learns how, and God forbid somebody might could teach you how, but... But that's another question. It, it takes me a while myself even now, and I used to do it all the time, especially with somebody else's kid. I don't know. It's just different. <laughs> but I'm learning. But the point I'm saying here is that, that, yes, it's important. Don't think of, of participating in the nursery or child care during worship as just one of these things you've got to do. It's kind of like a necessary evil. No. It is answering the vow, taking a step forward, assisting our parents and the tender nurture of our children wherein they can come to faith in Christ. And it starts there. And then it comes down to church. And again, I can't tell you how many times in, the worship, in, in Scripture, whenever there's an assembly of God's people, it's almost always noted that children are present. I mean, I have all kinds of passages here how when Judah stood before God with the little ones, their wives, and the children, two times, 
They were in the assembly of God with all these kids. Joel, Mark, Hebrews, all these places. When Christ says, you know, hinder not the children to come to me, the church has historically seen that in a history where the church were not hindered in joining the people of God in the corporate worship of God. There's a book on the table back there where the children table is on um, uh, something about being in the presence of God together is the title. I, I put it together uh, and it's a book on just how and what the theology is about children and their relationship to our worship service and how to move them in a graduated way into that. But the key thing here, what I'm arguing with you, that's another way we all can help. When a kid's back there and they're wrestling, you know, I mean, look, I'm sorry, little toddlers just don't sit still. But we're sympathetic to that. We're willing. Now, maybe you want to sit on this end and not that end or something, but we we're gonna we're gonna all oh, we working together. Parents working with those who who may know that that could be very disturbing. But but those who are disturbed working with the parents, knowing that it is our vow and desire to see those children come into the context of worship, because there's power here. They're getting a lot more from it than they understand. Believe me, and you can read the book about that. Thirdly, we talk about training and instruction. We have a Sunday school here. It would be my personal desire that every single person in this this house, whether you're single whether you're not, whether you're uh, after kids and a grandparent or not, everyone should aspire, I think, if it's in your gift mix to do it, to be a teacher. Again, why not? Because that's, that's what it means to assist, to be a part of this nurturing and training of our children. Imagine if every member in the church, or at least half of us, said, yes, I'm going to help out with the teaching. We're not asking you to be a professional teacher, by the way. We're asking you to be a, 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 a volunteer parent. Because it's the parent's primary duty to raise them, to teach them in the Lord. But, but be a parent and explaining the gospel to them. We'll give you a curriculum, etc. But here's a way we can help. And we do that with that kind of attitude. Well, I'll just close with that. I'm a little over, so I will. But I hope you appreciate. There is a very profound thing that's just happened here. If you understood the sermon. You are no longer an event CPC, you are the very sacred household of God into which the great promises of eternal life has been invested. And our first missionary strategy is our children. Amen.